Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. As you're finding your place there, I want to welcome all those who are joining us via our live stream. Now, we have many join us week in and week out uh, via our live stream, whether that be on uh, Facebook Live or our website or YouTube, but we're grateful for all of you joining up with us. The venue service right down the hall and uh, Reach Church uh, DeSoto. Grateful for each and every one of you. First Samuel chapter 10 this morning, you remember uh, when we left off last week, this nation has uh, asked uh, for a king. That's their request. And uh, we've talked about this, but the, the request itself is not necessarily sinful. Uh, God was going to give them a king. In fact, he'd already given them direction and instruction as to how the king would operate in Deuteronomy 17. The request itself is not necessarily sinful. What made it sinful was the motivation behind the request. It's a good reminder that oftentimes what matters most to God is not necessarily what we ask for, but why we ask for it. Uh, what God considers is the heart that, that lies behind the request. And behind this request is uh, we would prefer a, a king like the nations, one we could see. And what's interesting is God's going to give him a king, but guess what? He's not going to be a king like the nations because he's going to give him some instruction on how he'll operate. And he'll not operate like the kings of the world. But God is going to uh, grant their request, and by granting their sinful request, he'll use it as a means to bring about great good. Isn't it good to know that we serve a God who is so sovereign that he can take even our mistakes and even sometimes our sinful mishaps and turn them around for our good and for his glory? I hope that's encouraging to you today. The greatest example of that being the cross where Jesus Christ died. The sinful activity of man, and yet God used it to bring about the greatest good ever known. The free gift of salvation. What a great God we serve. And so God, as Samuel is going about his life, God comes to him and says, tomorrow you're going to meet somebody. And God begins to direct Saul by means of some lost donkeys. And he's guiding both Saul and Samuel, and they come together at a certain place. And uh, Samuel says to Saul, you're God's man. God's about to elevate you. And the first thing that we, they will do, we saw it last week, the first thing that they do is they sacrifice uh, that before we anoint this king, we're going to sacrifice. We're going to acknowledge God in our fellowship with him. And they spend the night. They get up the next morning. They're leaving Ramah. And you remember that uh, Samuel tells Saul, send your servant on ahead. We, we need to have a private moment right here. And that private moment leads us to our text this morning. Let's pray together before we jump in. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we acknowledge this morning that uh, this is no ordinary book. Your word is living, active. This is your word to us. 
and we pause corporately right here in recognition that you desire to speak to us today. And Lord, maybe our mornings have been somewhat chaotic. Maybe it's been a rough week. But all of us together this morning, we humble ourselves before you and we say, we need to hear your voice. God, I have nothing to offer your people this morning apart from your word. But the good news is your word is all we really need. So speak to us, change us, God. We don't come today because we want, want, want more information. We, we come because we want to be changed. So God, speak to us by means of your word and your spirit this morning. Conform our lives. Conform our wills to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me in verse 1. We're going to see a, a very solemn mo moment here as in just the commonality of some country road, I guess, outside of Ramah, there's going to be a conversation between two men, one-on-one -on -one conversation without any fanfare, not a lot of people, and just the two of them. And yet it'll be one of the most significant events in the life of this nation is God will anoint the first king of the nation of Israel. It says in verse one, then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? You know, as I read this, uh, you've heard me say before, but I try to put myself in the shoes, in the position of the people within the story. And I think that so much of this was probably very overwhelming for Saul. We see no indication that Saul was some kind of spiritual man. Much like Esau, he's more of a carnal man. That the things of God in Saul's life will be a strange activity. But here is Saul and and put yourself in his shoes. You've just gone after some lost donkeys for your, for your dad. And suddenly you've been, been informed that you're going to be king. And here is this great man of God. A man who's revered by the nation. And in a private conversation suddenly he, he brings out a flask of oil and begins to anoint you. And certainly even though... Though Saul probably wasn't a spiritual man, I think he understood the significance of this meaning of anointing with oil. It was commonplace amongst that culture. They understood this. But up to this point, the only anointing that's occurred is the anointing of priests. That's the only anointing that, that, that we know of the people of God doing up to this moment. And so for all we know, maybe Saul thinks, what's going on here? I'm not in the priestly line. What's happening here? God will anoint him by means of Samuel as king. Anointing was just a way of symbolically demonstrating that this person had been set apart unto God. 
In many ways, it was a recognition of the, the Holy Spirit being poured out on an individual and setting them apart for a, for a particular service unto God. And here God is anointing the first king, and it's a demonstration to, to Saul and to us that this office is a divinely ordained office. This office of king is a divinely ordained office. In fact, all that that Saul is going to hear from Samuel can be summarized in a very clear statement that Saul, all that you are is because of God. This is not a celebration of Samuel's ability to sift through resumes and find a really good candidate. This is not a celebration of Saul being such a great man of character and strength that now we're going to anoint him king. This is a demonstration of God's grace and his sovereignty to raise up whom he desires to raise up and put down who he desires to put down. And so there's an acknowledgement, Saul, you're king. It's a divinely ordained office. And then he says he, it says he kissed him. It, it, it was a demonstration of, of respect Submission, honoring an individual. You, you, you remember, if you know Psalm chapter 2, that great psalm where uh, the, the psalmist says, Take warning, O judges of the earth. Do homage to the Son, meaning to Christ. When it says do homage, some of the translations will say kiss the Son. It was, the, it was a picture of a person kneeling before a king and kissing their ring and an acknowledgement that you are God's divinely ordained king. Can you imagine Saul seeing Samuel? Now, I don't know if he knelt, scripture doesn't tell us, but in some way he kissed him and it was a demonstration to Saul that Samuel's saying, I am in submission to this divinely ordained office that God has put you into. Uh, you remember Paul in Romans 13 says that, uh, that every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities because there is no authority except that which is established by God. And so there's a recognition here on the part of Samuel that even though he's the judge of this nation, he's the prophet, that even he himself will recognize and submit himself to an office that God has divinely ordained. And he's not submitting to Saul because Saul is such a godly man. He's submitting to him because of the office that he holds is recognized as a divine office by God. Uh, we do the same things in our daily lives. We recognize divinely ordained offices. In fact, even police, uh, in accordance with Romans 13, are, to some extent, ministers of God. And they are put in positions of authority by God. And so when a policeman pulls us over, we don't first ask them if they've had a daily quiet time. Because we don't submit on the basis of the character of the individual, but the office that God has given to them. And so here even Samuel will say, I'm recognizing this divinely ordained office. God has established you as king. 
I recognize you as king. And you're to be a ruler. It's interesting. He doesn't call him a king. I think there's a a bit of reluctance in Samuel. He's so irritated that they asked for a king. I don't even think he can really bring himself to say the word king. But he says, God has established you a ruler. Some of your translations may say a prince. That this divinely established king, this office that God establishes, is a person who will rule. They will enforce divine law. That is the purpose of a a king or a politician is to enforce divine law, not to enforce church attendance or conversion, but to say this is the divine law of God. You don't steal, you don't murder, you don't rape, and if you do those things, you'll face the justice of God. That's what kings and politicians were intended to. To do the rest of it's just smoke and mirrors. That's the reason they're established. So here you're going to rule, and you're going to rule over who? It says his inheritance. Oh boy, it's a picture that to God's uh, to, to God, we as His people, we're His inheritance, His nation, His people are His inheritance. We we are His delight, and it's a reminder to Saul: you're going to rule over these people. But as you rule over them, know this: they're not really your people; they're God's. And you're accountable for how you treat them. And Saul, you're not to use these people to further your own purposes. You're to serve them and bless them. It's beautiful. Even in this first verse, we get a picture of the design of this office of king or politician. And together we see it combined with the role of priest or prophet there with Samuel. And the two of them coexist side by side under God's authority. The prophet declaring the truth of God's word and the king enforcing the divine law of God. And they bring to a nation great blessing by creating a culture in which good men and women have liberty and freedom and evildoers face the judgment of God. That sound like a pretty good place? That was God's intention. Here it is. He's setting up the first king, the beginning of monarchy right here in this individual. And then God, he's, he's here telling Saul that, that God has appointed you That all that you are is because of God. And God has appointed you. And then he's going to give him some signs. And he gets three signs. We're going to look at them pretty briefly. But three signs. And they're miracles. They're a confirmation. that These are things that are going to happen that only can be explained by God. And they're an affirmation to Saul. And they're an affirmation to the nation that God has appointed this man. God has appointed him king. So look with me, look in verse two. Samuel tells him, when you go for me today, then you'll find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you saying, what shall I do about my son? So the first thing here is he's gonna send him to a territory, an area near Rachel's tomb. So he's just been anointed, and the first place that God is going to send the first king, 
the first place this first king is going to go is to a cemetery. He's going to go to a, to a tomb. He's going to go to Rachel's tomb. And Rachel is a significant individual within salvation history and God's work. You remember uh, that Rachel, uh, the wife of Jacob, and she gives birth to two boys. You remember who they were? Joseph, and who was the other one? Benjamin. Joseph will have Ephraim and Manasseh and then Benjamin. So what did we learn about Saul last week? He's from what tribe? He's from the tribe of Benjamin. So you're going to go to your great, 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 great grandmother's tomb. First thing I want you to do, I want you to go and I want you to visit your great, great, great grandmother's tomb. Why would God do this? Because God does nothing by accident. Why would scripture mention it? Here's what I think. These signs, these miracles, I think they're also important truths that God wants to teach Saul as he begins the monarchy. And here's what I think he wants, he wants Saul to see in this. Saul, you need to know as you begin your role as king that just as Rachel died, you're gonna die. It's a reminder to Saul, don't get real high-minded about who you are. You are mortal. You're a man uh, that you walk every day one step away from death. In fact, he'll go on to tell him, you're going to meet two men there, and they're going to tell you what? That, yeah, that uh, the donkeys have been found, and now your dad's concerned about you. Why would his dad be concerned? He's a fearful that, that something has happened to Saul. Both through Rachel's tomb and his father's concern, God is emphasizing to Saul that you are every day, you're one, one step away from death. That Saul needs to be reminded, as you begin your monarchy, begin with the end in mind. I was, as I was studying this, uh, uh, Covey, uh, his habits of successful leaders, I think habit number two is begin with the end in mind. Saul, you, you, as you start your monarchy, remember one day you're going to die and it's been appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Saul, remember this, you're going to die and you're going to have to face me. You, you live with the end in mind, Saul. You, you begin with the end in mind. You, you begin by being reminded one day we're going to have a funeral for you. And what do you want to be remembered by? Uh, what is uh, Ecclesiastes 7 says better uh, to be in a house of mourning than a house of feasting. Uh, because such is the end of man and the living take it to heart. God says it's better to go to a funeral than a party because it reminds you that one day you're going to die. Uh, Psalm 90 says that the, the days of a man are 70, and if due to strength, 80. You get 70. You might get 80. I don't know. If you work out really hard and you're really healthy, you might get 80. But what does it say? He says that to let us know. Teach us to number our days. You know, one of the things that I encourage people to do all the time, I don't care how old you are, write your obituary. You know what that means? It means you begin with the end in mind that every day, if you want to, you, every day you need to be reminded that at some point or another, 
Unless Christ return, we're going to have a funeral, and there's going to be some people who speak some words about you. What do you want them to say about you? And you begin with that. And then you work your way backwards to say, what do I need to be doing today so that that's what's said about me on that day? So here, Saul, this divine miracle, you're gonna meet these two men, they're gonna tell you about this, but you're gonna go to this tomb, you're gonna be reminded that you're mortal, you're a man, you're gonna die and you're accountable. Then look at the second thing. Then you'll go on further from there in verse three and you'll come as far as the oak of Tabor and there'll be three men going up to God at Bethel and they will meet you, one carrying three young goats, one carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a jug of wine. They'll meet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. <clears throat> He's gonna go to this place. You're gonna meet three guys, and they're going up to God at Bethel. Bethel was a significant place in the life of the nation because that place where God came showed up to Jacob in a place of despair, and he reminded him. He saw that vision, of those, that dream of those uh, ministering angels. It was a reminder to Jacob in your place of hopelessness and despair. I'm here, and I have means of ministering to you and taking care of you even when you don't know it. And here, uh, Saul is going to go there, and he's going to see these guys, and they're carrying three loaves of bread, and they're going to have these three young goats, they're going to have a jug of wine, and they're going to give you two loaves of bread. <laughs> and I love the way God just gets specific. Why two loaves? I don't know. But they're going to give you two of the loaves. And it's a reminder. I'm, he's going he's to tell him exactly what's going to happen. So he'll know that this could only be of God. But I think there's another significant lesson here for Saul to know. That as you seek to do my work, you need to know if, that if you're faithful to me, I will give you what you need to accomplish my purposes. I have ways of directing people to you to meet your needs at just the right time so you're able to do what I've called you to do. And notice here, he doesn't give him three loaves and he doesn't, get a, he doesn't get any wine. He just gets two loaves. I think there's even significance in that, that God's telling him, I may not always give you what you want, but I will always give you what you need. It's a lesson that, that Saul needed to learn. It's a lesson that we need to constantly be reminded of as we're faithful to God. Do you know this today? God has ways of meeting our needs. He may not always give you what you want. Uh, Proverbs 30 says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Uh, don't give me riches because then I, um, I have much and forget about the Lord and think I don't need God. Or, or if I get in poverty, I might be tempted to steal and profane the name of God. Just give me the food that is my portion. Do you know this today? Do you trust this today? That God will give you what you, as you're faithful to him, God will give you what you need. And Saul's gonna be put in some positions where he's gonna have to trust God to provide for him. These are lessons, important lessons. I remember for, for me in faith, uh, certain times and certainly early in our marriage and early in my uh, ministry work and we had nothing. Uh, it, was, it was week to week, it was month to month and yet we, faith and I, those are some of the best days. You know those days as a couple when you got nothing and yet God would intervene at certain times in right ways. It brings me to tears to think about how God would show up and he would give us just one what we needed at just the right time. Oh, Saul, there's gonna be this miracle that reminds you that this is of God, but it's also gonna be a lesson to you. I'll, I'll take care of you, you just trust me. And then finally, look at this third, uh, verse five, after you'll come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, 
And it shall be as soon as you've come there to the city that you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine fruit and a flute and a, and a lyre before them. And they'll be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. And it shall be when these signs come upon you, do for yourself what the occasion requires. For God is with you. So you're going to see these these men, this group of prophets, amazing. All of a sudden, now we have a group. We start Samuel. The word of God is rare. Now you've got groups of prophets. And they're coming down. And they're, they're coming down from worshiping. And they're, they're so overwhelmed by God. They're singing with these instruments. And uh, God says to him, you're going you're to be caught up. You're going to be so overwhelmed by, by the worship of these people that the Spirit of God is going to come along. You mightily, you'll become another man. Now, if, we, if we're not careful, we'll read into this regeneration. We'll begin to read into this that, 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 that Saul experiences regeneration. I don't believe that that's what this is talking about here. In fact, I, I am of the personal belief that, that Saul is not regenerate. Uh, there are those who might disagree with me, but we see no indication of faith in Saul. We see a carnal man who will not end well. He has trouble and difficulty trusting God in every area of his life. But in this moment, the Spirit of God, and it will come, and he's not going to come a new man. He's going to be a different man. He'll be another man. And we see this in the Old Testament when the Spirit of God would come on men like Samson, and it would rush upon them, and Samson would tear a lion apart with his bare hands. But here in this moment, God is going to come upon him and there's an affirmation that this role is of divine nature and he'll begin to prophesy. He'll be a different man. It's going to be a strange thing for him. And in verse 8, you shall go down before me to Gilgal. You, what's the significance of Gilgal? You'll remember as the people of God are entering into the land. Gilgal, they, they crossed the Jordan. And you'll remember after that, that generation that was unfaithful to God, that wouldn't trust God, after they've all died off, they stop at Gilgal. And at Gilgal means to roll away. And what would happen to them there? They would commit themselves unto God. They'd be circumcised. And they commit themselves to God, recognizing that as we go into the land to seek to conquer this land that God has given to us, if God's not with us, we're sunk. And God's going to bring Saul down to Gilgal. And he says, behold, I'll come down to, to, to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come uh, to you and show you what you should do. He's going to go down to Gilgal, this place of consecration and commitment before they go into battle. And God says, you're going to go down there and you're going to wait for me. The message here is, don't you dare try to do my work apart from my power. It's the same thing with the spirit coming upon Saul. It's a reminder that apart from me, you can do nothing. And don't you dare. It's like the disciples uh, gathered up in a prayer meeting for 10 days. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. But don't you do this work apart from the empowering of the Spirit because you'll fail miserably. So you wait for me, and we know, we anticipate, if you've read ahead, you know he's not going to wait. He'll fail in this area of his life. Look at verse 9. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel. God changed his heart, and all those signs came about on that day. Verse 10, when they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. And it came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets that the people said to one another, what's happened to the son of Kish? 
And Saul also among the prophets? Uh, a man there said, now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? So the spirit of God comes upon him and he's a, he's a changed man. He's a different man. And, and, and again, we think of in the New Testament, we have to be careful. We think of salvation and the rebirth that in Christ we're a new creation. The old is gone and the, the new has come that when a person comes to faith in Christ, our desires change, who we are changes. And that's a beautiful thing. But I don't believe that the change here is demonstrated in necessarily a positive light here because what you're seeing is that as God establishes the monarchy, as this is the first king, the things of God will be strange to Saul. Listen to me, when, when we're looking for somebody to vote for, we don't primarily want to look for an individual who's not known for being a man or woman of prayer. That reading the Bible and prayer and going to church is a strange thing to these folks. Uh, Saul has been known as the big guy. He's been known as the strong guy. But he's never been known as a guy who goes to church. He's never been known as a guy who reads his Bible. He's never been known as a guy who who spends time with God in prayer and has a desire for God's own heart. Uh, this is not a good sign as Saul is starting. They see him prophesying. They say, boy, we've never seen Saul. This is crazy. In fact, they came up with a proverb. When, when, when a person engaged in an activity with, that was incongruent with their character and who they were, you would say, is Saul among the prophets? In other words, you see Pastor Chad at an opera, you say, it's all among the prophets. That guy don't do that. So this is a strange thing. Listen, when, you're, when we're looking for leaders, we have to be careful. We don't want to go and follow after people who the things of God are strange to them. We want leaders who delight in the law of the Lord and in their law they meditate both day and night and guess what they become? Like a tree. Good kings in the Old Testament, they're pictured as trees. They become a delight and a blessing. Bad kings in the Old Testament are always depicted as beasts. Creatures that have power, but they have no moral conscience. Is that a danger? Do we see that occurring in our world today? A nation that was founded upon godly principles, and we are living in a secular society today, that says we don't want God. And we don't want God in our kings. We don't want God in our politicians. We're going to push God out of everything. Listen, you start pushing God out of everything, you have no moral conscience, and you have a beast that will bring about great immorality and evil. He will not, that those leaders will not become a tree. They'll become a burden and a curse rather than a blessing. And guess what? Israel's going to experience this in Saul. And then we conclude, look there, it says, verse 13, when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Now Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, where did you go? He said, to look for the donkeys. When we saw that we could, they could not be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had mentioned. So suddenly uh, Saul's uncle shows up here on this scene and he understands something's happened here. I, I need some form of explanation. So he asked Saul, what happened? Well, we, we just went to look for the donkeys. We couldn't find them. We went, to, we went to see Samuel. He tends to know about these things. And what did he say to you? Well, <clears throat> he told us the donkeys have been found. 
He didn't necessarily lie, just doesn't give the full truth. And, and I don't know, I, personally, I look at this and I don't think he's trying to be mischievous at this point. I think he, he just knows that that was a private moment and when God wants to declare that publicly, he will. So he just tells him, he told us where, or that the donkeys were found and everything was good. But his uncle understands, so there's something that's crazy that's going on here and I think you can trace it back to a conversation that he had with this man of God named Samuel. You, you look at this story, you say, How, what, what, what relevance does this have to us? The beginning of the monarchy of this ancient nation, this, well, what, what, what relevance does this have to us? Boy, I tell you today, well, I'll tell you for me personally, it, it, it was really relevant this week. Because you look here and you see that this nation, all their hopes, all their dreams are tied up. The desire of the nations, we want a king like the nations. Do you know what I think the thought of Israel is? If we just had a really good king, boy, then we'd be great. And everything would go great. Then we'd have a good economy, and then we'd have a good military, and nobody would come against us. And God says, is that what you want? I'll give it to you. And he gives them a king, and guess what we're going to find out in Saul? We already begin to see the cracks in the foundation right here in chapter 10. He is a very flawed man. He is a carnal man with no real desire for the things of God, and he will not become a blessing. He's going to become a burden. And they're going to realize it. Oh, but God is good and gracious, and he raises up another king. And boy, David is a great king. In fact, he'll become the standard as you read First and Second Kings. What does it say about every great king? Uh, every king, it says either they followed in the steps of their father David or they did not follow in the steps. Of, and that's the litmus test as to whether or not they're a good king or a bad king. But what do we know about David as good as he was? He was a murderer and an adulterer, and, and he died. He was mortal too, and, and he couldn't usher in the, the fullness of the kingdom. And, and so God raises up another king, and he's going to give him a guy who's incredibly wise, but he's immoral. And then the kingdom will be divided. And we'll see some good kings occasionally in Judah, nothing real good in Israel, and eventually they'll go into exile. They wanted a king. Somebody who would lead them into victory and peace, rule in righteousness. And they're in exile and they probably feel like all hope is lost. In fact, Daniel, you remember Daniel is in exile? Man, well, what, what's going to happen? Maybe after we get out of exile. But do you remember Daniel has a great vision? Daniel 7, he says, I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with, with the clouds of heaven... One, one like a son of man coming. It says he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all the peoples and all the nations and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his is a kingdom that will not be destroyed. God was telling Daniel, Daniel, the hope of this nation and the hope of the world is not an earthly king. It's not getting out of exile. It's an eternal king, King Jesus, who will come. And we live post 
Christmas, post-Calvary, and we look back and what do we say today? The king has come, hasn't he? We celebrate his incarnation at Christmas. He came, Christ came, and he demonstrated his kingly authority in his miracles. He performed miracles over demons and disease and even death. And he ushered in his kingdom, not by means of battles and bullets and swords, but he ushers his kingdom in by means of a substitutionary and sacrificial death on a cross on behalf of his own people. And in his final act of kingly authority, he conquers the grave. He's resurrected. He ascended to the Father. He has come. And what do we know today? He is coming. His kingdom is spreading today. How is it spreading? It's spreading the lives of every person who bends the knee to King Jesus. They recognize him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And they bend the knee to Christ. And they know his reign in their hearts. And they love him and they serve him. Every time a person trusts in Christ, the kingdom spreads. And what do we know? Ultimately, this king and this kingdom will fully and finally come. Visibly, Christ will come, the trump will resound, and the Lord will descend, and he will put down all evil. This great and final king will bring final justice, and his people will know peace. Listen, all of these passages are pointing us to the final king, King Jesus. What do we do today? Oh, we stand firm. We will seek to live as the best citizens in whatever nation we find ourselves. But we stand firm. We will not change the the meaning of marriage. Won't change. They say, why won't you change? I'll tell you why we won't change. Because Jesus is king. And we will not change gender, and we will not change sexuality. And you say, why are you so mean? We're not being mean. We do this because Jesus is king. And why you, Jesus is the only means of salvation. There's salvation in no one else. Why can't you just live and let live? I'll tell you why, because Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Oh, he's a wonderful king. He's sovereign king. He spoke creation into existence. He's a pursuing king. He pursues his people. You know what I love about this king too? He's accessible. King Charles hadn't sent me an invitation to the palace. I just thought he would be high on his list. Never got an invitation to the White House. But every, every moment of every day, I can come boldly into the presence of King Jesus. And he says to you today, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, all these false kings, they won't provide what you need. Come to me. My burden is easy, my yoke is light, and you'll find rest for your souls. This week, song just kept ringing in my head. Jesus, Jesus.
Jesus, there's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. Father, we love you. We praise you today. We praise you because you sent King Jesus for our sins and our salvation. I pray if there's anybody that doesn't know you today, you'd draw them, they'd bend the knee to King Jesus. For those of us that do know you every day, we would submit our lives, kiss the sun, and stand firm. We'll do our best to submit ourselves to governing authorities, but ultimate allegiance is due only one man, and his name is Jesus. We love you, we serve you, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.